0: Let's go. Let's go. Oh, no. you yes, want to sorry, sorry. I'll let you, I'll let you. next one. I'm excited, and I feel relaxed, and I'm ready to party. Don't say so sorry.
1: You don't need to do that. You don't need to apologize. It's a fucked up female habit. You don't need to be sorry for anything
0: ever. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I don't have rage issues. I have nothing to prove to you. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, i'm better i say when it comes to stardom and lauren there are no accidents hi karen peterson hello and welcome to citizen dame the podcast where we would like to go back to 1962 and beat up a whole bunch of men i'm karen peterson joined by lauren humphries brooks
1: (laughs) the entire hollywood system of the 1950s and 60s um let's see specifically like joe dimaggio and the kennedys and arthur miller and in in the contemporary moment i would like to kick andrew dominic's ass as well just (laughs) because possibly joyce carol oates as well because like she's been a bitch about it so yeah i'm mad (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. yeah so how are you
1: lauren (laughs) i'm good I'm good. I'm actually really excited about Todd for talking about Marilyn Monroe, like, because I, I, she is so underrated in so many ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that is our, our main topic for today is, is Marilyn Monroe. And, um, her, her birthday was June 1st. She would have, uh, she would have been 97 this month, if I'm doing the math correctly, (laughs) something like that. Sounds right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, instead she was taken too soon in 1930 or 1962 at the age of 36 and uh her death has been a lot of subject of conspiracy theories and and things but really it just comes down to she was seriously mistreated and uh abused by Hollywood and um but her legend endorsed. For better or worse and mm-hmm. as a result people have really underrated who she actually was and what she accomplished so we're gonna talk about her today um before we do just how are things in general how's life
1: not bad not bad i'm gonna start vacation uh in the middle of next week which i'm really excited about nice um, are you gonna go anywhere i well i'm going upstate to visit my parents and some friends i'm hopefully gonna um go to massachusetts and visit a friend uh, and then mostly just, like, hang out and not do anything. That's my main goal for this vacation. I am not doing anything.
0: That is the best. <laughs> I hope that you get to accomplish exactly that.
1: I once look forward to going back to work at the end. That's the thing. I want to be like, man, I've just been doing nothing, and now I'm ready to do something.
0: hmm Yeah, yeah. I... um I'm not really taking any vacation time this summer since I took my big vacation in the spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm really feeling it. <laughs> it's like I went to a conference for work one one week. And then let this last week I had I basically was running a conference at, at work um for the whole week. So it's just been a lot. And now I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go on vacation. And my coworker is like, okay, I'm ready for you to come back to the office since you've been basically out for two weeks. And I'm like, uh. all right i guess i should do my job again (laughs) so yeah no vacation time for me but we do get fridays off so
1: yeah there's that something that is something
0: yeah and and they officially have made juneteenth a recognized holiday in my district so we'll be off on monday as well yeah good so but i feel i have a lot of feelings about just sitting at home and taking that as just a holiday i'm like no i feel like i need to do something with that like i need to to make that something you know Mm -hmm. where i i don't you know i just i feel like i need to to go out into the community and just like you know participate in something instead of just sitting around and enjoying Mm -hmm. the free day off so i don't know what i'll do yet but we'll see it's la there's lots of stuff Anyway, I'm sure you'll be able to find something to do in LA. Yeah, <laughs> there's always something. Anyway, so um yeah, um I don't think we have any follow-ups from previous episodes. Um so let's just get right into talking about Marilyn, shall we? Yes, I think that we should. All right. So, um a few just like background facts about her and this is coming from Encyclopedia Britannica, so um, so super more reliable than Wikipedia, I think. I don't know. Anyway, um, but more she, verifiable, definitely more verifiable. Yes, yeah, yes. That is that is true. So Marilyn Monroe was originally born Norma Jean Mortenson, uh, although she would later uh, go by Norma Jean Baker before changing her name um, professionally to Marilyn Monroe. She, her mother was, um, uh, her mother was Baker. That's why she took on that name at one point, but, uh, her mom had a lot of, of mental health issues and was frequently hospitalized. Um, and you can imagine in those days, um, what that must've looked like. So she was, uh, basically raised by foster parents in and out of the system for most of her childhood, which is just so, so sad to imagine, um, in 1942, she got married. She was working in a, fa- a factory um, during during the war, making air- airplanes, and met someone there. They got married. They got divorced. And then she became a model and eventually took a contract with 20th Century Fox, changed her name to Marilyn Monroe, and started making movies. And... Um, I think she would have had a very long career if she had not tragically passed away in 1962. But, um, a lot of her, her early films she was in the asphalt jungle, all about Eve. Um, gentlemen prefer blondes, how to marry a millionaire. There's no business like show business. She married a few times. She was married to Joe DiMaggio and they did not even make it a year. She married Arthur Miller. Um, and uh yeah she also starred in some like it hot and her very final film was the misfits so um which actually turned out to believe i believe be the final film for clark gable as well yeah um so yeah so today we you know we we really have been enjoying doing this where we choose our topic and then we pick like three specific films to, to talk about so for today we wanted to talk about um don't bother to knock from uh what year was that one i don't know what 19, na-
1: 1952 uh gentlemen prefer blondes is is 53 and then the misfits uh is 61 61 yeah
0: mm-hmm. yeah so that's what we're going to do today but before we get into those specific uh, films lauren what are some of your favorite performances for marilyn monroe well, I think
1: gentlemen prefer blondes is definitely one of the major ones. And so we'll talk about that in a minute, but some like it hot, she is fantastic and some like it hot. And I, you know, she's probably more so than pretty much any other actress. She's been so kind of swallowed by her own mythos mm-hmm. and, yeah. and by, and by sort of the, all of the, you like know, you say, all the conspiracy theories around her death the relationships that she's that she had, the um the emotional problems, the psychological problems that she had, her addictions, all of those things. And so she's become this image more so than like an actual person or, you know, in, in terms of our process, an actress. Right. She was an actress. And so one of the things that something like some like a hot is that she is absolutely essential for that film. And she's fantastic in it. She's funny. She like, the scene with her and, and Jack Clemon in the, uh, in the bunk bed on the train is hilarious. And part of it is because of Marilyn Monroe's awareness of who she is and awareness of the part that she is playing. It isn't, I, I think there's so much focus you know, turns to very rightly in a lot of ways, Jack Lemon and, and, um, and Tony Curtis in that film, because they are the stars. They're very much the focal point. But she is so important there. And it isn't just her her mythology, her like, oh, she's Marilyn Monroe. Um, and it isn't even just her body or her looks or anything. She is very much in control of herself on screen and is such a a good comedian and in many ways the straight man. Right For these two men um and and it works perfectly, so I absolutely love her in some like it hot, and I know it's it's sad sometimes to talk about these films because we know a lot about the background and how much she was struggling, particularly in the late fifties and and early sixties, and like having difficulty remembering lines, all of those things. but on screen, she's amazing,
0: yeah, yeah, she's so incredible, and then her and her performances are are always. Um, there's like even in really small roles, like in All About Eve, there's just something about her where mm-hmm. she's very captivating. Like, she really draws the camera to her. She really just kind of just steals scenes. And, um, and she's just so, uh, she's just always so mesmerizing to watch. And, um, I think that's part of why this, um, why there's this enduring kind of, mythos around her because um her loss really was so so deeply felt because mm-hmm. i mean she just was such an incredible presence and um and unfortunately because of um i think because of what was happening with in her life off screen and and circumstances around her death and and just also how beautiful she was and some of the some of the characters that she played i think that that is why people have kind of forgotten about her as a human being and um have just kind of like you know every image that we see of her is this blonde bombshell you mm-hmm. know like pinup type of picture and um people just really lost track of the fact that this was a, a person with um a lot of real struggles and a lot of real hardships in life that was very taken advantage of
1: and and a lot of talent too mm-hmm. i think it's very easy also then to slip into this sensation of like, you know, of oh, the the tragedy of Marilyn Monroe. Right. Or or the you know that. And that's one of the things that I think gets uncomfortable, you know, and we talked about back when Blonde came out and, and all of those things. But what gets very uncomfortable is that there's almost this relish of like, oh, this beautiful woman who d- was destroyed right by by violence, by misogyny, by her own problems. Um, that things that were internal not just external right and and there's there's this tendency to then be like there's there's a certain sadistic enjoyment i think that some people have Mm -hmm. of the fact that this gorgeous woman who was so unattainable in so many ways and that's where the misogyny comes in right um would like basically you know essentially destroy herself and and you know and there's that open question about like did she commit suicide or or was it uh, unintentional like all of the was she murdered all of those things but all of that stuff like then feeds into this real ugly obsession with um her pain and her suffering and it becomes more about that pain and suffering it stops being about her talent and stops recognizing her talent ultimately Um, And that's one of the things that makes me mad about a lot of the discussion of Marilyn Monroe. Even the stuff that's like really sympathetic towards her is still like, oh, she was in so much pain. Oh, she was suffering so much. Just like, yeah, but that wasn't only what she was. And, you know, let's let's look at those those films, those performances that made her an icon beyond again, beyond her beauty, beyond her body. There are plenty of beautiful women in the world. Mm -hmm. um there was something about her so like you referenced all about eve she comes on screen she steals like a scene via via about three lines in all about eve she's in two scenes total Mm -hmm. and it isn't and like yeah she's beautiful she's young it's like oh my god it's marilyn monroe she's very like she walks onto the screen and she she is very much there she's very present and you're talking about a scene that also has Betty Davis and George Sanders and, <laughs> and Baxter, right? So, this is not like, you know, the, the, it's not easy to steal a scene from those people, right. especially <laughs> with this very minor character. But her line, the way that she delivers the line I don't want to make trouble, I just want to drink, <laughs> is hilarious it's funny like she's funny and you immediately shift your focus to her whether or not you knew you know in 19 whatever that is 1950 right Mm -hmm. that oh that's marilyn Monroe. she's going to be a big star in about a year right um she she has like you said she has this presence that stretches beyond whether or not she's an attractive woman
0: right yeah absolutely and um and I just I look at her filmography and I there's a lot of her her films that I have not seen, but there are quite a few that I have, too. And there's just there's so much joy in those movies. And it's like, yeah, there was a lot of hardship and heartache going on for her behind the scenes. But she she still was able to just bring so much joy and life when she was working and when she was just on the screen doing you know doing her thing and um Mm -hmm. that's that's what makes her that i think that ultimately is why people were so drawn to her and then somehow like you say this you know people really just started to fixate on the the tragedy of it um but we don't want to talk about that we want to talk about the happiness so let's start with uh don't bother to knock i guess (laughs) the have the happiness and And then with the misfits
1: don't bother to knock well i I so I I was the one that suggested these films, right? <laughs> and but the reason for it is that I think that the these three particular films really do showcase her abilities as an actress, yeah. Um, in several different ways, right, and they're all very different films in a lot of ways. Um, but don't bother Tanakh. I think is it's one of those films that like it's not as a whole film it is not a great film, but her performance specifically, I just find riveting and Mm -hmm. it it again is highlights the fact that she was a good actress right beyond anything else um and it's it's one of those films that makes me kind of go like you know in a different era she would have had she would have had a longer career but she also would have had these much heavier parts Mm -hmm. and and i think that that's what's really fascinating about that film the the other one that that does something similar is niagara um in which she plays she plays a femme fatale but it's one of those times where just like like if only she had been allowed more space to exercise those actual dramatic abilities mm-hmm. um you know i think that her career would have also looked a lot different
0: yeah i actually found myself this week wondering if she had not if she had not passed away when she did um would she and elizabeth taylor have kind of been duking it out for some of elizabeth taylor's iconic roles Mm -hmm. i kind of feel like they would have
1: well yeah because you think about the 1960s hollywood was changing Mm -hmm. right so if if monroe dies in in 62 hollywood was shifting and it's already happening in the 1950s right when she's beginning her career and when she's really getting a lot of notoriety. But yeah, she so by the 1960s, and you know, even like Marilyn Monroe in the 1970s, she would have been in her in her 40s. Um, she and even in the misfits, you see that like she's she's aging, she's changing, she's not the 20-something that we're kind of introduced to in in all about eve, right? Um, and I think it would have been really interesting to see how her career would have fit into that changing tide of Hollywood, of feminism, of um those roles that you like, know, you say someone like Liz Taylor was getting uh, mm. and was able to get. And how, you know, and and even in so even in like around 1961, where she's doing the Misfits, she had been at the Actors Studio at that point. She had been working with like literally trying to improve her performance, learning about acting, learning about method acting, all of these things. And her acting style was changing. Yeah. Um, And you can see it in the difference between like something like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and something like the Misfits. Um and so, yeah, it would have been fascinating to see where she would have actually gone with that into the 1960s and into the 70s when she was older um, and when she, like, might have actually had a more interesting more interesting options than what was being given to
0: her in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about, uh, first of all, let's talk about Don't Bother to Knock, which mm-hmm. um, came out in 1952. And... Um, in addition to marilyn monroe also stars richard widmark who we did an episode on um i think late last year yeah um maybe during november i think um anyway why don't you kind of sum up the plot for us
1: it, it all takes place in this hotel where richard ridmark is a uh airline pilot who's essentially going to see his girlfriend played by Anne bancroft by the way <laughs> who is just there and i was like Anne bancroft <laughs> very young Anne bancroft yeah um and they're they're having conflict because essentially she she's she all but accuses him of being a sociopath (laughs) that like (laughs) he doesn't feel for other human beings. (laughs) Yeah. He's very logical, but he doesn't have any feelings. Um, and so over the course of like them having this conflict, he winds up running into, um, Nell played by Marilyn Monroe, who's been hired as a babysitter for this young girl while her parents are actually in another part of the hotel at a banquet. Um, And she's been hired by her uncle, uh, played by Elisha Cook Jr., who is in everything, basically, um, who is an elevator operator in the hotel. And it's pretty obvious right from the very start that there is something off about Nell, (laughs) that there are things that um, aren't quite right about her. And over the course of the evening, she and Richard Ridmark begin this flirtation, which then begins to turn into... Um, him questioning exactly, you know, what is wrong with her and what is going on with her. And it takes a darker and darker turn as the, as the film goes on. Um, I, I, find, I personally find this film fascinating. Like I say, I don't think that it's, it's a minor entry in, you know, the careers of people like Richard Widmark, but I think that M- Monroe herself is playing so much against the type that we expect her to play. Like even in Niagara, she's very much the the sort of she's the blonde bombshell. She's the femme fatale. We watch over the course of Don't bother Knock, We actually watch her turn into the blonde bombshell in a lot of ways, and it's it kind of shows her putting on this performance that she is trying to enter into this this sort of mindset and become different. Um, and and i really like that about her performance and then nearing the end there more there's more than a few moments where i was just like oh my god someone help this woman <laughs> like so much of it and actually i like the fact that the film emphasizes that because so much of it is just like oh what is she there's something really wrong with her like she's gone crazy and she's like she is a psychopath all of these things just like no she needs help she yeah. needs help she needs someone to
0: help her and she's basically begging for that too and yeah i had never seen this before this was my my first time watching it so um i i i try to not read a lot about movies before i watch them when we're going to do them for this episode like for for the podcast and so i didn't know anything about what i was getting into when i when i turned it on and i was like oh wow this is this is actually a really interesting character and um just some really compelling work from Marilyn Monroe where um i you know most of what i've seen is like the seven year itch and and stuff so so seeing her in this type of character in this type of role um it was she's she just draws you in you know you just can't you just can't help just begging for someone to just like, please just listen to her. And, you know, everyone around her is just trying like throughout is just, you know, you've got the Richard Woodmark who just, you know, wants to flirt for his own reasons, not because of her. He doesn't know her. (laughs) Um, This was such a, such a fascinating performance from her because of the fact that it was so different from what I was expecting. And um, it was very, i don't know It was a very unexpected story too i, I wasn't mm-hmm. i couldn't guess where it was going entirely other than like you say there are signs from the beginning that something's off and she needs some help but it's for me at least it wasn't it wasn't obvious what that was going to turn out to be so
1: yeah and and there's there's so much of this one that's about different characters particularly male characters imposing their viewpoint on her yeah and And some of it is, is based. And so the viewer gets to know a lot more about her just right from the very beginning. We see her being introduced to like Bunny, um, the little girl, we, you know, sort of see her trying to navigate this, this space. Right. And, and she is off. There's something off about her throughout, like from the very beginning, she's, you know, and I think that part of it is also looking back on, her as Marilyn Monroe right we're not used to seeing her in these kinds of roles right um where she enters she's wearing a very dowdy dress she she's her makeup is very low key um and then as the film goes on she actually she literally begins to put on makeup she begins to put on perfume and jewelry and um dresses and and all this and so as the film goes on you actually almost in the sense you watch this this girl turning into Marilyn Monroe right um and But underneath all of that is this pain, the this, this suffering that she's going through. And she's being mistreated and misunderstood, really, by everybody around her. Um, and she does need help. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I really like in, in this is, is that she shifts from being a sort of sweet and a little kind of lost to being incredibly menacing very quickly like from just one minute to the next and actually the Richard Widmark character remarks on that like one minute she seems totally fine and the next minute she's not you know (laughs) and it's like yeah and and that switch happens so easily but one of the things I really like about it is that Nell herself seems to be aware of it she's Mm -hmm. aware that there are that she has problems and that but she's afraid of kind of being mistreated of being sent back to um, to oregon of being kind of shunted to the side and and she's just so desperate for some kind of an understanding and is sort of putting on these different personas and different performances in a bid to to find herself the i mean one of the most intense scenes for me is where she like the relationship between her and the little girl oh my gosh which is already strained from the beginning and then gets darker and darker as the film goes on and and it's very subtle actually like it's it's just like and and again you know so often in these films the major communication is if a woman cannot empathize with or take care of a child she's evil right Mm -hmm. and but i actually like the fact that the film's conclusion what essentially the the what they draw from this is not that she's evil it's that she's damaged and she needs help she needs someone to help her she needs to not be treated like this this image right that other people impose their ideas on
0: right yeah um yeah there's yeah the whole thing with with this little girl bunny that she's taking care of um that is like you mentioned that is a really just strained strange relationship from the beginning. They don't know each other. she's in charge of this kid that she doesn't know. this kid is just supposed to trust this stranger to take care of her. she's got a lot of opinions about that. The girl is actually kind of annoying but um, I don't I think that's just because of how it's filmed. I don't think that's anything to do with the kid herself but um not entirely anyway. Um, like she cries a lot and I'm like, you're way too old to be crying like that not at all. <laughs>
1: at the same same time she's been left alone in a hotel room with some (laughs) random woman who keeps putting on her
0: mom's perfume yeah who
1: keeps and like dressing up in her mom's clothes and then this random man appears (laughs) in the hotel room and it's just like oh no don't be afraid of me like that attire seemed just like i know that this would play differently in the 1950s but still i'd be like fuck you Mm -hmm. like no don't be afraid of you who the fuck are you random
0: <laughs> strange man that is suddenly in my bedroom right yeah so um but yeah i i think that that um it it does lead to some very intense and very just tense um moments for um um for nell i forgot her name for a second um and really does start to reveal this kind of unraveling that she's going through, and so by the end, she's completely undone um, as a result of just all the things that have happened over the course of this one evening. And um, and yeah, I think watching watching Marilyn make that transition, it's yeah, it it really does show very early on in her career just how talented she was that she was able to pull that off it didn't feel cartoonish and a transition like that can if it's not done well and she did such a such a great job of really uh representing that um that switch but also that descent throughout mm-hmm.
1: yeah there's a it's it's a very in terms of her characterization i think it's a very psychologically realistic characterization
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: um all of the permutations that now goes through and the struggle that she has with that. And again, I, I like the fact that this is a woman who is aware she's aware that there's something wrong um, mm-hmm. and that she is troubled. And, and the problem is that all of the other things that have happened in her life essentially lead to her either trying to conceal that or trying to, like, get through it in some way. Um, and so a a lot of her behavior, she, you can see that she is tortured even by her own behavior at times, where she's like she's making up lies, she's changing the the um, you know, she's changing her story about who she is and where she comes from, and all of these things. And all of it is just like kind of in the pursuit of understanding of someone, you know, she she latches on to the Richard Woodmark character as kind of this stand-in for uh. For, for the boyfriend that she lost but it stretches way beyond just the trauma of having lost someone yeah any other
0: thoughts on Don't Bother to Knock
1: I just want to encourage people to watch it because I think it's a really fascinating film Um, you know it's and particularly and really entirely for Marilyn Monroe's performance in it
0: yeah and by the way I guess this is a good time to uh to mention that all, there's a if you have criterion which you should by now um there is a marilyn monroe collection and all three of the films that we're talking about today are available on it plus a whole bunch more plus a whole bunch more yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah all right so let's talk about gentlemen prefer blondes why do I- you i love gentlemen prefer blondes
1: (laughs) i love this film so much
0: (laughs) um yes i do too it's a great film um and i also love some films that have referenced it as well so we can talk a little bit about that too so what do you love so much about gentlemen prefer blondes
1: um, I love the fact that it is a stealth feminist film and and it it almost it's easy to miss almost like if you just watch it at a totally superficial level it's just like, oh, this is fun, it's a little sexist, all of this stuff but it it is it's fun- it's feminist like I would absolutely make that argument a lot of people have um and actually, one of the things that i I like about it is throughout the the entire film the female gaze is very much present and i'm not just talking about the scene where jane russell dances with like a whole bunch of mostly naked men
0: um <laughs> there's
1: that definitely entire but, like, olympic team <laughs> the yes the entire men's olympic team uh but there, so there's definitely that right there's there's that element and i think that that scene in particular really emphasizes like okay this is the world that we're in basically but throughout the film so much of it is about particularly marilyn monroe and jane russell being in control of the gaze and being in control of who looks at them how they are looked at the way they are perceived and who and who you know who gets to who gets to look at them and who doesn't There is so much strength in both of their performances. And one of my favorite scenes is just the scene where they enter the dining room and they are gorgeous. They're both coming down the stairs, but there is so much power in the way that they move and the way that they walk. They are inviting people to look at them, but they're also very much in control of who is looking at them and why and how they are perceived. Mm -hmm. It is so it's it's also just very funny it's very much a film about like female friendship which i quite like yeah uh and and it kind of underscores you know a lot of the a lot of the like you know monroe has some fantastic lines like when she said hey you know you were supposed to be dumb you don't sound dumb at all and she she says well i can be plenty
0: of smart when i (laughs) want (laughs) to be mm-hmm yeah, gentlemen prefer blondes. That's one that um, I did watch it again this week, but I've seen it—I don't know how many times—and it's one that I find new things to appreciate every time I watch it. And some of that is in characters, and some of it is just in—you know—this is such a rich, um, a rich artistic film too. Like with the costumes and the set design and all of that. Like there's just this. This is such a big. Fun movie. It's based on a stage play uh musical. And they just they really did a great job, I think, of turning this into just a, a big, fun um Hollywood musical. And um, you know, there's a lot of like Marilyn Monroe getting dubbed for the singing parts and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, but who cares? She's so great. <laughs> like, I just I love her in this role of Lorelei. And um, she's just so fun to to watch and just having a great time and her and jane russell together they really are such a such a fun pair and um yeah like you say too i i love how um this this movie really is very um a little bit under the radar but uh feminist and um and it's entirely in and this is kind of where we talk about uh, you know, some people still want to pretend that the the male gaze doesn't exist and and whatnot, but this is where this is what we're talking about. Like it's entirely in how these women are filmed and how they are able to present themselves and have that um have that agency over who they will allow into their orbit,
1: yeah. and and you know the it's in watching it this time, like you, I've seen it a number of times. Um, but rewatching it this time, I did notice that there are, for a film starring, right, Meryl Monroe and Jane Russell, like, arguably two of the, like, two of the biggest bombshells, as yeah. it were, <laughs> of the 1950s, um, it, there's a surprising lack of, sort of, of male gaze, right? So there's, so, and when we talk about the male gaze, you know, talk about particularly in the treatment of women, the treatment of women as objects. They are very much not objectified, amazingly enough, in this film. Yeah. They are um, there always the is, subject. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They are always, they're always in control. Like I say, there's, there's this level of control. And that's not saying that they are not looked at as beautiful. They are, but there are very, there's no like cheesecake shots. There's no, um, the camera's sweeping up their legs or anything like that. There's no sense that the camera is consuming them, but rather they are controlling where the camera is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that like runs throughout the entire film. And it's 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 interesting because you would assume you basically would assume that this kind of film with these two women in particular, of course they're going to be like objectified, like but they're not, and and it's it's remarkable in that sense. Um, I mean, and and also for the fact that you know, Lorelai is dismissed as dumb, uh, and and Dorothy is kind of like the the friend who's sort of trying to keep her her friend on the straightener and, and all of that. Um, they are they show how very smart they are the entire time. The men are the stupid ones. The men are the ones who get manipulated. The men are the ones who get uh you know kind of used and and treated as kind of being like, well, you know, no, I'm I'm kind of running the women are running the show, and the men are just sort of like they're being stupid, essentially. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Lorelei has this great moment too where they're talking about her engagement and um. And someone, you know, is accusing her of being a gold digger, and she just has this great, this great part where she's talking about like, well, why shouldn't I care about marrying a man with money? Wouldn't you want your daughter to marry someone that has money? Wouldn't you want her to be mm-hmm. taken care of? Why am I any different? Why do I not deserve that too? And-
1: well, yeah, the the entire film like really does exploit the fact that, and it is a very 1950s film in that sense that. These women have a certain kind of power, and, but it's, it's a very limited kind of power. Mm-hmm. and they know how to use it, and they have to make choices about how they use it. Uh, and that's what Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend is all about. Like if you actually listen to the lyrics of that song, for the most part, it's advice mm-hmm. that the Lorelei character, the Marilyn Monroe character, is giving to women, saying like, "Here are all of the things you know that you can get." from men but you have to really pay attention to you know don't basically you know don't let these men use you and not get anything in return um yeah. and so in that in a certain sense it's very cynical but in another sense it's very realistic in terms of particularly in the 1950s when women were very dependent upon men and very dependent upon who they married and the real, power that women had, uh particularly beautiful women, was their sexuality and how they used their sexuality. And so this film very clearly acknowledges that and and, uh shows the women kind of being in control at that level.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about Diamonds Our Girls Best Friend.
1: Okay. Let's Let's talk about it. Let's (laughs)
0: talk about it. So overall, what are your um what are your thoughts or what is it about that scene that that you particularly like (laughs) well i mean it's iconic like
1: it's it's such a well it's a well staged dance number to begin with fantastic Um, but but i do i do think that it's one of those those scenes that comes at a very important part it's very much integrated into the film Mm -hmm. um and and like i said it kind of expresses the ethos underlying the film which is that lorelei in particular is very aware of the power that she has and she is telling other women here is how you use that power to your best advantage. Yeah. Um, but that power is incredibly limited. And so, you know, it's it's like, that's when those louses go back to their spouses, <laughs> right? It's very much saying like, get what you can out of men while you can. Right. Um, mm-hmm. because, because they are looking to, essentially it's like the underlying part of that is they're looking to exploit you. And they're going to exploit you. And if you don't get something out of that, then you're losing at some level. Um, yeah. don't don't pretend that you know you're going to um you're you, that it's always going to be there for you. You have to essentially you have to get it while you can't. Um, and it's for such a very upbeat and joyful musical number, it's actually, like I say, it's a very cynical concept, <laughs> um, but very realistic to the time period and very realistic to the way that women were treated.
0: Yeah, well, it's very smart, too. And it's it's um, it it's one of those because of the the upbeat you know like it's easy to overlook or or miss the point of it and i think a lot of people do um but but within the context of the film I, i think it just it it works so well because of the like i love leading into that where dorothy is telling um um what's his name um like oh was- just wait for yeah just wait for the number that she's prepared for tonight and it's like i've seen this before <laughs> so i know what she's talking about um but, but it's like that was a very like i love the way that it is worked specifically into the plot like it fits into the plot and there's it's there's a point it's not just oh this is a fun dance number it's like because mm-hmm. a lot of musicals of the time period would just randomly have a song but um this really is plot specific and it's very well done
1: (laughs) well and and i i like so there's there's that whole tension that that question throughout of like does she love gus Mm -hmm. and i think that she does yeah and she has been pursuing, but she has very obviously been pursuing rich men right? right and looking for the rich man that she can can love and wealth is very important to her and she makes that incredibly explicit throughout the entire film. It is important that this man is wealthy, but it's also important that, like, I love him. So she definitely prizes the the uh, wealth aspect over love. And in fact, I like the fact that she encourages Dorothy. She's just like, Dorothy, we've got to
0: find you a millionaire. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's the thing, too, because it's like if it was really just about the money, she could have married a lot of other people, you know, mm-hmm. like. It's not like the money is part of why she wants like why she's willing to agree to marry Gus. But I, I agree. I think she loves him, too. I don't think it's just because he's rich. Well,
1: Yeah. And I I love that final scene or that the scene with like the the father who's basically been like, you know, I'm going to stop this gold digger from marrying my son. Mm -hmm. And he says, like, are you saying that you don't, you know, want to marry my son for his money? And she says, no, I want to marry him for your money. (laughs) Right. And and that's the same where she's just like, well, wouldn't you rather if you had a daughter, wouldn't you rather your daughter marry a rich man than a poor one?
0: Right. Of course you would. Yeah, it's that moment. Yeah,
1: and so she she's striking that balance of kind of being like, yeah, I'm getting married because he has money, and also I love him. Those mm -hmm. are both things that are important to me, and she's (laughs) very unapologetic about it.
0: Yeah, she's not. Yeah, she has nothing to hide. She's not. She's not lying about it. She's being very upfront. So yeah.
1: Well it's it's the same thing with uh the tiara thing. yeah um and and again it's there are shades of may west actually in some of this mm-hmm. that whole thing of like of you know she, she's accused of stealing the tiara and she's like no he gave it to me like yeah. i'm not gonna say no to a tiara if he gives it to me. <laughs> and
0: then and, they're like and, give it back and she's like no he gave it to me
1: <laughs> yeah it's a, it was a gift it's mine you know <laughs> yeah. and and again it's made into this joke but it's also like well actually yeah like it's not like she stole it she didn't like and, and there's this whole thing just like oh you seduced it out of him or something like that's just are like, you're saying that this grown-ass man had no control over giving me a tiara mm-hmm. like it it is that and it points that out really well and and ultimately i like the fact that both lorelei and dorothy are successful they get what they want in the end
0: they do they do um yeah any other final thoughts on gentlemen prefer blondes again it's such a
1: it's such a wonderful film i i hope that when i first saw this film i thought that it was very anti-feminist and then i got a little bit older and watched it again and i was like no actually this is incredibly feminist
0: yeah yeah Well, that's the thing is like sometimes they got you got to sneak it in and do it in a way where it looks like it's anti so that you can you know kind of discreetly get your message in there so and that's what they did so thanks Howard talks (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's talk about our final film which is her final film the misfits from 1961 which um was written by arthur miller and directed by john houston and um in this one uh monroe stars with clark gable montgomery clift Eli Wallach and Thelma Ritter. So it's um it's not a big sprawling cast. There's there's other characters that pop in and out, but it's really kind of focused on these these five main people. Um, this one I saw for the first time last year. The Academy Museum did a um they had a restoration screening of it. And so it was a really just beautiful print that I got to see. It was introduced by Danny Houston, um, and uh, that was my first time ever seeing the film. I had heard about it, but I just had never watched it. And um, it's definitely not a happy movie, but it is a very good one. It's it's a it's you really see um, Maryland's dramatic like we've seen so many comedies and things from her but you really see her dramatic work here is just so stellar and it's it's um it's unfortunate that this is her final film but i think it's also some of her best uh, Mm um best work too what are your thoughts on the misfits
1: well i saw the misfits for the first time like last week (laughs) oh uh yeah i would never seen it before it's it's one i think part of it is that it got a very bad rap for a long time yeah it did um as kind of being like oh you can tell the that monroe is is having all kinds of problems montgomery clift is you know also having all kinds of problems clark gable is old Mm -hmm. and um and sick and so so like they're I, for a long time there was this attitude of of like oh this was very much a just such a troubled film and just never really paid off actually watching it i had difficulty watching it not because it was a bad film but because it was really devastating yeah um yeah. the the performances across the board are fantastic like and i i like the fact that there is this um there's a conflict going on in terms of the acting styles uh where clark gable is very much still this this very old school Hollywood star. Right. And you've got people like people like Montgomery Clift and Marilyn Monroe, who are younger and are coming out of a very different acting tradition than he was. But I like that. And and that actually also includes Eli Wallach. But I think that that conflict of styles actually works really well for the characters um, because of who they're playing. You know, Gable is playing this this cowboy who is essentially seen all of the things that made him who he is slip away. Mm-hmm. Um, Monroe and Clift are very much trying to navigate a world that they don't really belong in. And and particularly Marilyn gives, like you say, such a fantastic performance in this film. She there all of the all of the characters are right on the edge, but her in particular, she is just like, she's she's one step away from just losing her mind, basically. Yeah. And she's struggling so hard to maintain and to find some kind of place in the world and is, is failing to in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. Well, and and I think that a lot of that centers around the, her character's uh, reason for being here in the first place. So she's from somewhere else and she has come to, uh, to Reno uh, because in those days, uh reno was known for quickie divorces and um it takes about six weeks so she has but you you have to live there for you have to be able to be a resident of of the city for six weeks to get the divorce quickly and so she does that and so um thelma ritter's character uh isabel is this um this woman who kind of owns this house where she basically just takes in these women who are just coming to, to do exactly that, to get divorced quickly. And, um, so that's how the two of them know each other. And so, um, so Roslyn, Marilyn Monroe, she's getting this divorce and then she meets Eli Wallach's character, which is, uh, Guido. And, um, the thing about, <laughs> the thing about, uh, Rosalind that I feel like probably mirrored in some ways Marilyn's own life was um you know there's these comments about how like she got in a car accident it's cuz men just keep running into her just to have an excuse to talk to her like this poor woman just can't go anywhere without men just bugging mm-hmm. her and like they just won't leave her alone she's beautiful she you know she's very sweet and kind and they just won't leave her alone and so that's kind of like who who she is and what she's doing uh leading up to when she meets guido and gay which is eli Wallach and clark gable and so it's like this poor woman just wants to be left alone and and she just you know can't just live her life but then Mm -hmm. but then she meets someone who captures her attention and and who you know has all the things that that she maybe didn't know that necessarily she was looking for she really likes the wide open space she's from somewhere in the east you know where it's a little bit more um busy and she really likes the pace out west and so that's kind of why she decides to stay and i think meeting this rugged aging cowboy um wasn't i I think she would have been interested in staying even if it wasn't for him um but it's interesting to watch the way the two of them kind of um talk and try to communicate and struggle a little bit too because of their very different uh, Mm um very different backgrounds and very different lives
1: yeah they they find a deeper connection and i i think that you're right like this whole thing about men just not leaving her alone that's a lot of the film actually and and even though you've got these three men guido gay and um uh purse who gets montgomery cliff together who's introduced a bit later and all three of them are demanding something from her yeah and they're demanding that you know it's it's kind of like the wife the mother the prostitute like everything she she becomes this kind of focal point for the three of them um and they're they're like in in different ways all three of them ask her to take care of them Mm -hmm. and throughout the film you see this like expression that she gets on her face which is like no no that's not what i want like one of the most devastating moments i think of the entire film is after they've been like all out drinking and that all of the men have gotten like incredibly and have got incredibly drunk they're trying to get everybody's trying to get home they finally get home and essentially she has to put these three men into bed right mm-hmm. to get them all to go the fuck to bed so that they can sleep it off right and there, there's this whole, it's a very long sequence um, where, you know, they're all kind of asking these different things of her. And then finally she just, it finally stops, there's silence and it's been a very loud scene. There's total silence and she leans up against the house and she just like barely says, help. Mm-hmm. And you get this wonderful moment, this really painful moment in a lot of ways of this character just desperately needing help desperately needs someone to help her and all of these men asking her to help them right asking her to be the thing that they need yeah um and then that's followed by again very i think one of the reasons why this film is difficult to watch is they're very difficult sequences Yes. the entire horse breaking sequence um where they round up these mustangs Mm -hmm. and then rope them and all of that. And that's the point at which she gets to let go. Right. Um, and, you know, th- again, some of those those moments of her just like screaming at them that they're animals, that they're not men, they're not human, right? <laughs> all of these things. And that kind of letting go of that and her being able to let go of that and then eventually finding you know, a real connection with another person that stretches beyond, you know, you need to take care of me or you need to be the thing that I need. We need yeah. to be the thing that each other needs. Uh, and that's kind of the conclusion of of her narrative.
0: Yeah. I really like the the friendship that forms um, almost kind of like a, I, I think that it starts off as kind of a maternal one, but I think it becomes sort of feels like a sibling relationship that she has with purse where mm-hmm. um they they meet him he's just this like this guy who's just kind of you know he's trying to get to the next rodeo <laughs> he's been hit on the head way too many times he has and he, he's just kind of a little bit out there and um but she just very very immediately just really cares about him and uh, not in a oh I'm attracted to this person way, but just like oh he needs someone to look after him, and so she kind of t- does take on that role. And so when he gets hit on the head again, and she's you know trying to take care of him, and he makes a comment about no one's ever done that for him before, and and he talks about the story about um, his father dying and his stepfather being just awful and how his mom changed as a result of all that and so he just tells this really heartbreaking story so by the end um with the the mustang sequence when he can just really see how devastated she is and how just like emotionally impactful this is for her then Mm -hmm. he's just like you know what and it's not even about like hey this is wrong he didn't really want to go on this trip anyway but it's he sees that as an opportunity to to do something for her and it really is about her it's not about Mm -hmm. like oh if i do this i'll get in her good graces like he really does care and wants to um wants to make the situation right so i i just i really love that relationship
1: but that it clarifies, I, th- I think it clarifies something for him, and then to slightly, in, in a slightly more complicated way, that it also clarifies something for the the Gable character, where they begin to look at what they're doing through her eyes
0: mm-hmm.
1: and kind of realize, like, and even in person numerous times, just like this isn't worth it, like this isn't worth the money that we're going to make for this, right? Like, it isn't worth the suffering, it isn't worth the the difficulty, any of this stuff. This is not worth it and and that's contrasted then with you know at one point guido offers to let the horses go and but he does it if she will like i mean the implication is that if she will sleep with him if mm-hmm. she'll i think he, i think he says like if she'll make it worth his while right. and she just loses it on him yeah um, it's just like how how the fuck dare you basically and it's it's a great moment but it does kind of produce that contrast of like doing something because you realize that this is something that needs to be done and and when you say purse is not doing it because it's gonna it's going to make her give him something or yeah it's gonna make her give him something but because this is the right thing to do
0: Mm -hmm. yeah well and, and i love that not, not because it's good. I love the, like the way that it's done that, that descent for Guido, because when we first meet him, he's just this affable guy, you know, mm-hmm. and he's really friendly and, and obviously he's flirting with her. And when he invites her to, to come and have a drink, but, um, but he's just so sweet. And then when they go out to his house and he starts telling this tragic story about losing his wife and unborn child, because he had a flat tire, you know, and um and just like all these things and just you feel so bad for this poor guy who's, you know, he went through the war and and all this. But then it turns out that he is not actually a good person. She completely calls him out for that. And and then all these things that he talks about, all these tragedies that he talks about, it's like, does he actually feel anything for people? It, mm-hmm. The implication is that he actually really doesn't. It's all just about him.
1: Yeah, and he, I- he's 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 kind of the nice guy TM sort of mm-hmm. character. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got Clark Gable's character who is just, just mad that the world is changing around him and he just keeps complaining that everything gets changed all around. And he can't handle that. And mm-hmm. but because of, of her, because of her influence and because of of her persistence in the end, um he finally does start to realize that you know it's not worth it and um sometimes you do have to just let go and there's sort of this moment where you think oh these two are done like she she even says Mm -hmm. i'll i'll leave in the morning and then something else happens and you kind of get the sense of no he's he's gonna he's gonna grow from this experience he's gonna he's gonna realize that he needs to change and well, he through her, he's able to let go of that thing that he because because a lot of the the
1: whole thing about must, going mustanging. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and talking about like so they they think they're going to get 15 horses. They find six. Right. um And and this whole thing that this way of life is gone in a lot of ways. And he even talks about the fact that when he was initially doing it, they were rounding up horses and they were training the horse. They were turning them into horses to be ridden right. and to be used by cowboys and stuff like that. And now they're being turned to chicken feed mm-hmm. and and dog food. Um, right. And he's still doing it pretty much because that's the only, he's trying so hard to hang on to this life that doesn't exist anymore. And he again, sees that through her, yeah. um, but it becomes, I, I like the fact that it's, she's not just a cipher. She isn't just this thing through which these men learn to be better men or anything like that they she clarifies something for them but she's also very much her own person she says like i'm not doing this i'm not participating in this anymore Mm -hmm. um you know you can go fuck yourselves basically i'll leave uh the 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 scene like again it's a very long shot houston films this very very well it's a very long shot where she just like runs into the middle of the desert and starts screaming at them Mm -hmm. um and and it's wonderful and it's stronger, just like that isolation and that power that she has is so much stronger than if it had been like a close up or, or back and forth shots or anything like that. Um, but it emphasizes her autonomy as well, yeah. and that she becomes very autonomous. And so when her and Gable kind of come together again at the end, it's very much on an equal footing. It's no longer the sense of like she is going to be the thing that fixes him or that supports him. Right. Um, they are going to be there together,
0: essentially. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Oh, so good. It's it's really a good film. And uh, well, we just spoiled all of it if you haven't <laughs> seen it, but uh it's still very much worth watching. In fact, honestly, I wish I had been prepared for the Mustang scene before I saw it because it's very brutal. It's um, hard to watch. It yeah. really is. No horses are killed. Um, but I don't think but uh now i can't remember um but it's just the just watching the way that they are rounded up and the way that they are treated it's it's oh yeah it's rough but um it's it's a very overall it's a very good film really great performances from everybody i i just i really love this cast so yeah yeah any final thoughts on the misfits
1: it makes it makes me so sad (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it mm-hmm. makes me so sad, not because it's a bad film, but because it's a good film. And because I hate the fact that she didn't make another film after that. Yeah, um, a, a complete film. I think she was filming um, Something's Gotta Give when uh, she died. Yeah. So so she was she she was making another film. But um, it's I think that watching some of her films can be very sad because not because of the tragedy that was Marilyn Monroe but because of the talent that is there mm-hmm. and the the fact that in a lot of ways we were we were robbed of that talent like i I'm, I'm mad that there are no Marilyn Monroe films from the 1970s yeah i'm mad that she wasn't there to do that whatever that would have meant right whatever she would have done in the rest of her career yeah um i'm i'm upset by that <laughs> mhm
0: and, and i mean we all have we, we see actors like that, you know, even up to today mm-hmm. with River Phoenix or Heath Ledger or Brittany Murphy, or you know, actors who are gone too soon. And you just sit there and th- you watch their films, whatever we have of them, and you just think, man, what could they have been doing today if they mm-hmm. if they had not died so young? So, and she is definitely one of those. It 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 really, especially looking at at where she where she gets to in the misfits just imagining what kind of work she would have done going on into the later 60s and into the 70s and and just wondering like how long would she have continued you know would she have still been making movies in the 80s maybe probably yeah yeah anyway well watch her movies there on the criterion channel there's some good ones on there too and so. there's some
1: fantastic ones yeah there's there's a very early um for her a very early film and a very um, a later film uh by fritz lang um called clash by night where she has a very small secondary role but she's great in it and uh and the film itself is fantastic it's robert ryan and barbara Stanwyck. uh it's a really really well done film as well
0: nice all right. Well, that's going to wrap things up, I think, for this week. Mm-hmm. So thank you all so much for listening. It's been a lot of fun and we hope that that you've enjoyed it too. Um, we especially want to thank our patrons for helping keep the show going. Uh, they are Ollie, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Judy, Karen, Carriotta, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, and Tao. Thank you all so much. Your support really does help pay for our hosting, our website, all of that. And, and uh, we could not do this without you. If you'd like to become a patron too, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen and, and sign up. And doing so gets you Early access to episodes, bonus episodes, um, and some other fun things here and there, too. So, uh, and you just get the joy of knowing that you're helping keep our very feminist podcast in the world. <laughs> so, um, we also do have our Zazzle store, Zazzle.com slash Citizen Pod and Ko Fi, co Fi.com slash Citizen Dame. Uh, we also do have a donate button on our website directly if you uh, want to click click that. So if you want to help us out but don't want to make a commitment, those are some ways that you can do that. Our website is citizendamepod.com. and Lauren has been doing some great stuff uh from Tribeca. So just yeah, got a on right few now? more
1: few few more films that are going to get put up there within the next couple of days hopefully. I'm very slowly
0: writing my reviews. Awesome. Okay, so so far out of everything that you've seen, what is like one movie that you want people to watch out for?
1: I okay, so I actually haven't posted the review of this one yet. Um, the Gulspang Miracle. Okay. It is a, a Swedish documentary. I, I the reason why I haven't posted the review yet is because I'm having real difficulty writing the review without spoiling it. Mm. So it's one of those that you want to go in knowing. You can know a little bit, but not tons because it takes some really bizarre twists and turns. Awesome. Um, but it's essentially about two sisters who meet a woman who might be their sister but also might not and and everything that kind of happens after that
0: fun that sounds awesome i can't wait it's
1: it's honestly wild the closest that i can come is uh, the documentary few perfect strangers um, that came out a couple years ago and it's that kind of it's it's a similar sort of story but it just takes all of these very strange twists and turns and is incredibly scandinavian
0: excellent I will definitely watch for that one. <laughs> so uh, so thank you for for that Tribeca report. We'll hear more from you about that next week, I think. Yes. Um, and okay. So if you want to reach out to us, you can do that by email, citizendamepod at gmail.com. You can also find us on the socials on Twitter and Instagram. We're at citizendamepod and on Letterboxd, we are at dame um i did not keep up with it as we were recording but i will definitely before the episode goes up add to our june list so you can keep track of all the films that uh we've been talking about for the month of june and you can sort by what streaming services they're on where to find them who's in them that kind of thing other recommendations lots of stuff letterboxd is fun i love letterboxd uh you can also find us individually lauren where are you I am on all the various socials at LH Business. And I am at Karen M. Peterson. So that is going to wrap things up for this week. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's
1: best friend. A kiss may be grand.
0: But won't pay the rental on your humble flat or help you at the automat. men grow
1: cold as girls grow old and we all lose our charms in the end but square cut or pear shape these rocks don't lose their shape They're